Thank you to Sam for the welcome. It's really great to be here with you uh, again and uh, to see some of you who I saw two weeks ago and to see some new faces as well. Uh, we're going to read in God's Word from Matthew chapter 5. We're thinking about the sixth commandment this afternoon. So we're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you've got your Bible and your phone or with you, then please turn to it with me. Uh, verses 21 to 26. And if you don't, then uh, listen along as I read this passage to you. And this is, uh, these are not my words, these are God's words. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Well, we're thinking about the sixth commandment and I want you just to, as we start to think about that, to imagine that you are walking home uh, or back to the office, sorry, after this talk. Uh, you're going a little bit quickly because the speaker went on a little bit too long. Sorry about that. Uh, but uh, you're on your way back to the office. And um, as you go, you see a man crossing the street. He's an elderly gentleman. He's crossing some of those high curbs that haven't been lowered yet. And he trips, falls, hits his head. What are you going to do? Well, you're a bit tight for time. So you see if he needs any help. Call some passers-by and on you go to the office because you've got an important meeting at 2 o'clock. So you get into the office and uh, you head into your project meeting with your, your different members, of co- your, your different colleagues and some of your managers. And as the meeting goes on, you've been up late last night, you've been preparing a document for that meeting and your name was on the front of that document along with your managers. Now they didn't have much to do with it, but you very respectfully put their name on it along with yours. But to your surprise, when you get into the meeting, your name has been removed and only your boss's name remains. You feel yourself getting a little bit tense. As the meeting goes on, it becomes clear that your boss is taking all the credit for your work and giving you none of the credit at all. And you feel a bit angry. So the meeting's over and you go to the kitchen for a cup of tea. It's mid-afternoon by this stage and you think, I just need to clear my head, get a quick cup of tea. And you go to the kitchen. There's a group of your colleagues there and they seem to be having quite a heated debate. They're talking about the new abortion legislation that's going to come into Northern Ireland and and take force. Most of them seem to be very positive about this. This is a great development. At last, we've got abortion, they say. What are you going to say? 
maybe it doesn't seem like it on the surface, but all of these issues have got something or other to do with the Sixth Commandment, and they all flow from the principle that really is contained within the Sixth Commandment. And we want to walk through that this afternoon. We want to, first of all, focus on the principle that the commandment lays out for us, and then we want to focus on the practical. How can we apply this to our lives? So let's, first of all, think about the principle, the principle. On the surface, this is probably the simplest commandment that there is to understand, isn't it? You shall not murder. Four words in English, just two words in the original language that the Old Testament was written in, in Hebrew, just two words. We are to not to take life negatively and positively. We're to protect life. We're to nurture life. We're to seek to uh, protect life as much as possible. Now, that's a principle that's very widely understood in our society, isn't it? And in fact, in in all societies around the world. I was recently listening to a podcast series uh, called Man in the Window. Don't know if any of you have listened to it. Uh, It's about the Golden State Killer, uh, a serial killer in the United States of America who operated in the 1970s, uh, but he wasn't caught. And the search for him went on for 45 years. The police had given up, but retired police officers and members of the public kept on looking for this man. And eventually, through DNA evidence and uh, looking at sort of Ancestry.com, they were able to track him down, and now he is behind bars. But why did, what drove those people to, to look for this man? Well, it was the sense of injustice, wasn't it? It was the fact that deep down, we all know that to take another person's life is inherently wrong. But why is murder wrong? What's wrong with taking someone else's life? Well, the Bible gives us two particular reasons, two reasons why murder is wrong, two reasons behind this principle that God has given us in the, in the Sixth Commandment. And the first is that life comes from God. Life is God's gift. It's God who is the giver, And therefore, it is to be God and only God who is the taker of life. God is our maker and our creator. And so as our maker and creator, it is he who decides when life ought to end. You might remember the the story of Job that's told to us in the Old Testament. Job was a Christian man. He had lots of possessions, lots of children. But one day, Job lost almost everything that he had. And as he sat in the ashes of his home, uh, crying and lamenting the fact that his children had died, Job said this to his wife. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in that moment, Job recognized that it's God who gives the gift of life. It's God who gives us every breath that we have. And it's God and it's only God who has the right to end life. But secondly, the Bible tells us more than just simply that God is the author of life, because God also gives life, doesn't he, to plants and animals and the world around us. So what's so different about human life that means that we shouldn't take human life, but we can take animal life? Well, we know that though the fall has distorted God's image in us, Not only is life a gift of God, but life for us as Christians is in God's image. Life for us as human beings is made in God's image. 
And though, yes, the fall has distorted God's image in us, each of us are made as image bearers of the triune God. That's the truth that God himself appeals to in Genesis chapter 9. And Noah, in, in this passage, has just stepped off the ark. Uh, he's, he's been through that flood. God has kept him safe. And as he steps off the ark, God tells him that no longer do, do mankind have to be vegetarians, eating only plants. Uh, but now God is giving to him all the animals to eat as well. But as he gives him that permission, he, he reminds Noah that man's life is sacred. And he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And as human beings, we are made fearfully and wonderfully and in God's image. And so the principle that really is laid down in the sixth commandment is this very simple principle for us that we shouldn't do anything that will take or endanger or shorten life. And positively, we are called to protect, to nurture and to extend life where we can. Well, that's the principle. But let's think a little bit more about how that applies then. Let's think about the practical. As we've been thinking about these Ten Commandments, we've seen that all of the commandments speak to us about the freedom that life in Christ gives us and speaks to us about the love that keeping the commandments expresses towards God. Lord Jesus Christ tells us that in, in Matthew in chapter 22 when he's summing up the Ten Commandments. He says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind and our strength and we are to love our neighbour as ourselves. Keeping the Ten Commandments is not something that earns the love of God, but it expresses our love for God. And I want to think through three particular areas where we can apply the Sixth Commandment uh, to our thoughts, to our words, and to our actions. And so you'll see in your handout that firstly we, we want to think about how we, how we keep this commandment in our thought life. And we are to deal with anger. We're to deal with anger in our minds. We read from Matthew chapter 5, and when the Lord Jesus came to earth, he began his public ministry by preaching this very famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, Jesus extended the application of many of the commandments beyond simply our actions and into our attitudes. He laid down in the Sermon on the Mount what a Christian person looks like. They're very different to the people around them. They have different values in life. They've got a different view of the world. They're characterized by being brokenhearted, by being meek, by being people who love peace. Those aren't values that are treasured or celebrated in, in our 21st century society. But after Jesus explains in the Beatitudes what a Christian person looks like, he goes on in verse 20 to draw a contrast, a contrast between the true Christian and those in the church in that day, the scribes and the Pharisees, who had kept keeping the commandments a thing only to do with your actions, only to do with something outside of yourself and not to do with your attitude. So for example, in the, in the, the command to do with the Sabbath day, the Pharisees had laid down 39 actions that you, you couldn't do and if you didn't do any of those 39 things, it meant you had successfully kept the Sabbath day, ticking your box, well done. But Jesus begins by telling us that actually murder 
is something that is more than the act. It extends into our attitudes. And he shows us that hate is what sits behind murder, that hate and anger is at the root cause of murder. Particularly, anger that we don't deal with. Now, we have to remember that the anger in itself is not sinful. You remember that Jesus was angry when he went into the temple and he saw that it was being corrupted and used to make money, to line people's pockets. But in our fallen human condition, it's very hard for us to get angry without falling into some sort of sin. Like the coronavirus that everyone is so worried about at the minute, when we get angry, it spreads from our mind and into our actions. Soon we find ourselves getting irritable with others, being awkward in our workplaces, speaking sarcastically to those who perhaps have offended us, being difficult. We're angry and it soon shows. And Jesus wants us to recognize just how serious that anger is. And so in that passage that we read, he shows us the consequences of anger and the most awful consequence of anger in verses 23 and 24. He says there that anger disrupts our relationship with God. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, when we are angry, we are consumed with the thing that's annoying us, with the words that have been spoken to us, with the way that we've been overlooked, we are consumed with that. We can't focus on God, on all he's done for us. Instead, we're focused on other people and on our own hurt pride, perhaps. Now, think about who this commandment was spoken to, the farming communities of Israel. There's farms, there's neighbors, there's many opportunities for anger, isn't there? There's squabbles over boundary fences. There's disputes over who has the ownership of sheep or cows. There's anger about dead animals or lost income. There's many opportunities for anger to rise up in these farming communities. And it's no different for us in our workplaces in the 21st century. We spend long periods of time with our colleagues, many of whom are ambitious, many of whom will step right over us to get to where they want to be. And perhaps there is unresolved anger in your heart or mind this afternoon. You got overlooked for the promotion that you should have had and it was because someone else was dishonest. An argument happened in your workplace. There were some strong words and you've never really got over it. Someone's made a snide comment to you about something that you have or haven't done and you've taken offense and you haven't said anything but you've held on to it in your heart. You're nursing unresolved anger. Maybe it's nothing to do with your workplace at all. Maybe it's something that's happened in your family. But it's spilling over into your workplace and your colleagues know about it. And it's not affecting your worship in your workplace, but maybe it's affecting your witness in your workplace. What must you do? You must deal with your anger. You must bring it to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, for that is the only place that anger can be dealt with. There at the cross, we are reminded, aren't we, 
that Jesus, the offended party, reached out in grace and love to us, those who had offended him. He took the initiative to pursue reconciliation with us. He held out the arm of peace and friendship to us. And as his followers, that is what he calls us to do. Whether you are the one who is offended or you are the one who has been offended, he calls you to pursue reconciliation, to deal with anger, so that it will not ruin your worship of him or your witness to others. That's our minds. What about our words? Well, we must speak about life in our words. Positively, this commandment urges us to speak about life, to take the opportunities that we have to, to talk about life. We live in a society that doesn't recognize those foundational principles that sit behind this commandment. Society doesn't recognize that God is the giver and taker of life. Many people in our society don't see any difference between an animal life and a human life. We see that in many ways. Here in Northern Ireland, very sadly, we've got one of the highest suicide rates in the United Kingdom. I was looking up some of the statistics as I was preparing this talk, and back in 1970, uh, when the first year that I could find on record, there were, there were 73 instances of suicide in our land. In 2018, that number had risen hugely to 307. Our communities are greatly affected by this. And suicide, of course, is a tragedy, one that we are so sorry about. But yet, what lies at the heart of suicide? It's thinking that we have the right to end our own lives, to take life. The distinction between animal life and human life is not recognized as one popular Christian song puts it, we're the society that wants to save the trees but kill the children. We've seen that recently, haven't we, here in Northern Ireland, for we've seen that drive to pursue abortion and to, to liberalise it and legalise it. And what sits behind that is a failure to recognise that God is the giver of life that the lives of our unborn children are truly made in God's image. The Australian ethicist Peter Singer, uh, commenting on this, says that the notion that human life is sacred just because it is human life is medieval. And he continues, he doesn't just want to see abortion, he wants to see infanticide, that's the killing of born babies. He says, of course, infanticide needs to be strictly legally controlled and it should be rare, but it should not be ruled out any more than abortion. And over the past few months, I imagine that at times in your workplaces, this has come up in conversation. And perhaps, and I say perhaps, there is the opportunity for you to say something about what you believe, to gently and to respectfully explain that the gospel of Jesus Christ sees people, human beings, as intrinsically worthy. Because they are made in God's image, their lives are valuable. Their lives are to be treasured. Of course, we need God's wisdom in when we are to speak and when we are to remain silent. We need God's wisdom in how we are to speak. As the Lord Jesus sends out his disciples to, to speak about him, he tells them that they are to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. 
But the sixth commandment gives us this opportunity to speak so positively about life. We're not just a clump of cells. We're not here meaninglessly spinning round planet Earth. God has made us. God has put us here with a purpose. And he has a plan for each one of our lives. So we've seen the practical in our, in our minds, in our words. But let's briefly see it in our, in our actions. Come back with me to the start of the talk. What about that poor man who's tripped and fallen down? What are we to do? Are we just to walk on past and leave him for someone else to help? Well, the sixth commandment calls us to protect and to nurture and to seek to extend life where possible. So we're to help that man. We're to be careful in how we drive our cars. These are dangerous weapons that we're behind the wheels of. We're not to go speeding around the streets. We're to be thoughtful in how we play sport. Not charging recklessly around the football field or uh, wherever. Not letting our competitiveness overtake us. We're to make peace when we see arguments or fights. In our actions, we are to protect life. It is a gift from God. It ought to be treasured. But of course, like all the commandments, this sixth commandment points us ultimately, doesn't it, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it points us to the new life that Jesus has given us in the gospel. He has given us not only the life that we will have on planet Earth, but he has given us eternal life and the promise of eternal life in the gospel. And though we have offended him, He has reached out the hand of friendship to those who have rebelled against him. He is the one who protects us, who nurtures us, who gives us every breath that we have. And he is the one who will take us to be with him one day in heaven forever, where we will have life forevermore. And so it's as we bask and as we celebrate the the goodness of that new life that Christ has given us, that we are enabled by God's Spirit to walk freely in that new life and to seek to pursue life, to treasure it, and to thank God for the life that he has given to us. Let's just pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you that you are the author of life. And we too bow to the fact that you are the one who will one day take life away. And yet, Lord, we thank you that in the gospel, you hold out to us the hope of life forever, eternal life with you in heaven. And we pray that you would help us all to grasp that promise and to live in the light of that promise as we seek to deal with anger in our minds, to speak life with our words and to protect life with our actions. Give us your wisdom and courage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.